dude. All right, ready? Three, two, one. Welcome to... Hey, great shot. This is the Great Shot Podcast, or at least the Attempted Shot Podcast, brought <laughs> to you by Cracked Rackets. My name's Alex Gruskin. Joining me for this brief introduction before we start our episode, he's back from abroad. It's my doubles partner, partner in crime, and the world's greatest ginger, Maxwell Bauer rothman Maxie, hey, great shot. Great to be back in the booth. Sucks to have GarageBand go down on us, but not in that way. <laughs> All you dirty listeners out there. But uh, yeah, it is how it is. <laughs> It's good to have you back. Oh my gosh. Leave it in West off. But so the reason we're adding this part to our introduction, obviously the episode you're about to listen to is our recap of the Wimbledon quarterfinal rounds. There were some incredible matches. You had Federer Anderson, Isner Raonic, Nishikori Djokovic, and Nadal Del Potro. And obviously here at the Great Shot Pod, we were incredibly excited about each one of those matches. Right, Max? Absolutely. And we had a ton of things to say. And we did say them, but as Max alluded to uh, just a few seconds ago, technology got the best of us this time, and unfortunately we lost the second half of the episode. So what you will be hearing after we finish this is our full breakdowns of both Federer Anderson as well as Isner Raonic. We started with the top half, and unfortunately, even though they may have been the better matches, uh, we don't have Djokovic, Nishikori, nor Nadal, Del Potro. So what we wanted to do briefly for you, because we do want you to know we have thoughts on those matches, in about two minutes or less, Maxi, what did you see from Djokovic and Nadal that allowed them to get to the semifinal round? Well, I mean, Djokovic played just unbelievable tennis, reminding me of his 2011 dominance. Uh, I mean, I do think that he is slicing more than he usually does. This is something we talked about in our pod, and... Um, some people would say that's a flaw, but I actually do like it a little bit. I think it's giving him more of an opportunity to set up the point and you know change up the pace a little bit. And you know he's been a little bit smarter with when he is going for that big down the line backhand. Um, you know, truly, I just think he's returning well. He's serving a little bit better than he was, and he seems fit again. So I'm, I'm excited. I think he's back to to good condition. That's the point. You know, again, a lot of these points are recycled between you and I, but just to mention in terms of distance covered, Djokovic and Nishikori couple covered double the distance in their match than Isner and Rayona. So obviously a much more physical match. As you mentioned, Djokovic was everywhere on the court. He was hitting the first serve a little bit bigger. His second serve struggled, and you worry about that moving forward, especially against a returner of Nadal's quality. But again, did a good job moving forward. I believe he went 19 of 21, 90% on his net points. Um, did a really good job of capitalizing when Nishikori would hang some balls short, which Nishikori did an odd amount of in this match, and so that is what allowed Djokovic to play a little bit more aggressive tennis. But yeah, as you mentioned, when Djokovic is returning like he is, when he's hitting the first serve that big, I mean, when he's showing the variety, the down the lines, cross courts, he's probably the top dog, probably in the best form heading into the semifinal round. Definitely, and, and before I get into the Nadal and uh, Delpo match, I think my prediction, you know, it, this could depend on where they are in the draw, but my prediction for U.S. Open is a Delpo Djokovic final. Maybe it's a semifinal. I don't know where they're going to end up in the in the draw, but I think those two guys are showing the most promise for the U.S. Open. Well, then let's talk about the other guy you mentioned in that projected U.S. Open final, Delpo, who loses in a five set uh, match in Nadal. That was tough. Probably the best match of the tournament, and we talked about this. Probably the best match 
of the year, right, in terms of quality of play? Absolutely. I mean, I haven't, I haven't watched that invigorating of tennis in a long time. Uh, I, I truly think that Delpo will win the U.S. Open. I think his game is... You are all in on that take. I am. I, I really think he's playing so solid. If I, Again, and I, I made this take in our lost draft, but I think that had this match been played on a hard court, this match goes to Delpo. So you say in this match it was more about Delpo losing out on the opportunity, and in this match, Nadal-Delpo, they moved triple the amount of Rayon and Chisner. So really, the quality of play and what you saw per point was staggering. The differences of style in matches throughout... I mean, we talked about this, the Delpo forehand, his ability to hit it on the rise and with pace anywhere, down the line, cross-court, just ridiculous. Did make a few too many unforced errors in the match. And I think that was the main difference. I mean, if you look at it, their their points, as far as total points go, were almost identical. Their percentages throughout, you know, the various categories were very close. Uh, I really think this came down to a few shots here and there. There's actually a take I didn't get to get out in the other pod that I'm glad I'm going to get to tell you now. I don't think Del Potro's that good of a volleyer, and I think the stats reflect that. He goes 14 of 28 in this match, 50%. Of course, Nadal probably has the best passing shots in history, yeah. but he's just not... A, I mean, look, when you have one wrist, a backhand volley is always hard, but a lot of people have one-handed backhand volleys. I just don't think he's that comfortable. He's a big guy, kind of lumbering, slipped a ton Oof. in this match. It sucks. Okay, yeah, so that was the thing. I mean, you saw Nadal complain about it in the match, too. He was saying it's wet. Like He, he actually looked at the line judge and said, hey, there, this court is wet right now. He was complaining about it. Um, I wish we had more time to dive into this because I actually disagree. I think Delpo is pretty comfortable with the net. I think this was a an abnormal stat for him. I think you see him up there and he's, he's got crazy wingspan and he's got pretty good reflexes. I do think it this was because of Nadal's passing shots. I mean, Nadal, just for someone his age, I believe he's 32 now, to move 16,565 feet on court during a match. He's averaging 48.6 feet per point. I mean... The guy covers the baseline like no one I've ever seen. And even to his credit, 67 winners in this match against only 34 unforced errors. Goes 36 of 47 at the net. Nadal has sneakily gotten better and better at volleying. And like you mentioned, we don't want to go overboard on this because, you know, we'll let you get to the full breakdowns and we don't want to be disingenuous. But I think it's tough to say Del Potro deserved to win this match. I think they both deserve to win it. I agree. Probably if you look at the level of play, at its highest point, Del Potro's was higher than Nadal's. But it's just a testament, again, Nadal's longevity. For 32 years old, the guy is as solid as he's ever been. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing I want to bring up, because I thought this was a hilarious thing that I brought up in the, the lost draft. Is <laughs> Del- you just want to retell your I, I know. But Delpo, in an interview recently... He um, hates to... Run. He does. <laughs> he, he literally said, quote-unquote, that he hates to run. That's why he hits such a big ball and loves to you know, end points quickly. Can I get that drunch for redoing that joke? Anyways, uh, I think it's pretty amazing that he kept up with Nadal and ran almost as many feet as as he did, so good for him. Then real quick before we go, let's do a quick preview of the semifinal. You've got Isner Anderson and Nadal Djokovic. Uh, You look at some of the the matchups, the history between these guys. Isner Anderson, career head-to-head. Isner leads Anderson 8-3. Their most recent result wasn't since 2015 when they played in Cincy and Isner took out Anderson 4-4. Their only result ever on grass was in 2008, so a decade ago. So again, with a grain of salt, you know, that's, you have to wonder, uh, that's what, before Prince Kate? That's before Prince, uh, sorry, Princess Kate and Princess Meghan, so... Long, long time ago, but Isner took out Anderson 7664, and you don't appreciate my British humor, but it's okay. Um, and then another fun fact about these guys 
Uh, the last time, or uh, one of the biggest matches they ever played, 2007 NCAA men's final when uh, Isner's Georgia Bulldogs knocked off Anderson's Illinois Illini 7-6-6-1 in the team final. So, you know, these guys know each other's game. As I mentioned, Isner has the head-to-head lead. Who do you favor going into this match? Yeah, I mean, we had a long conversation about this, but I think Isner has got it. The way he's playing right now, you know, Anderson, the reason he was able to, to take the match against Fed really was his attack on his second serve, and I don't think he's going to be able to do that against uh, Isner. I think, you know, Isner has been very strong at the net as well. So, you know, I think this is a match that uh, favorably for probably the first time is going to go Isner's way. And I also think, you know, we've seen him let us down too in, in the past. So, you know, I'm praying for him. I hope he wins this match. Please don't let us down. Uh, but, you know, we, who knows? They're, they're two really solid big men. I don't know what Anderson will do to take advantage or to play any sort of offense against the Isner serve. Isner's just hitting all of his spots. Again, the last guy in the draw to not be broken once throughout the entire course of this event. Um, you know, he's winning 90% of his first serve points routinely. He's clocking in second serves over 110 miles per hour routinely. Uh, versus Anderson, whose second serve sat a little bit short against Federer. And, you know, Isner just played Rayonich, another big guy, a match where he knew when he had a look at a second serve, had to step up into the court, take it aggressively. It's really hard to beat Isner in big man tennis. That's why I'm going to have to agree with you. I'm leaning Isner. My heart and head say, well, maybe not as much my heart, but my head said that's a, you know, how many times have you been burned by Isner? And what, uh, he's 16-11 on the year. Yeah, not exactly tough. the most consistent performer. But I'm going to agree with you. I think Isner's the guy to look at. But, okay, let's talk about our other semifinal real quick before we let you guys get into the episode. Obviously, this is the headline matchup. You've got Rafa Nadal versus Novak Djokovic. Neither of these guys have to worry about playing on court one because this match will surely be on center court. Uh, career head-to-head, Djokovic leads Nadal 26-25. That's a number for That's awesome. That's like me versus Kaushik. <laughs> uh, Nadal won their most recent matchup in Rome in earlier this year in 2018, but of course Djokovic has slowly been returning for form. Uh, you have to wonder if he was in his top form during that match. Their last result on grass, the 2011 Wimbledon final where Djokovic took out Nadal 6-4, 6-1, Of course, 2011 Djokovic is a much different monster than you know the current form of Djokovic and obviously I would argue Nadal's gotten better as a grass player just because he's added the volleying dimension to his game um, and then the last thing I'll ask before I get your prediction they've played four times in major semifinals Nadal is 4-0 all time against Djokovic who do you got in this match? Yeah so I, I was about to bring up that stat so it sucks because I was just talking a lot of uh, excuse me. it sucks because I've been giving a lot of hype to Djokovic. I literally just said I think he's going to be in the finals with Delpo in the U.S. Open. I think he is. He's made massive improvements um, and has you know shown that he's really been able to recover. Uh, I would love to take him in this match, but I just don't think he's been on this stage for a while. And I think Nadal is too seasoned at this point after the French as well. That you know, unfortunately, I do think this is going to go to Nadal again. Although I would love to see Djokovic. Well, this is a point I wanted to make for Anderson Isner. I just forgot. You wonder about Anderson after beating a guy like Federer. Yes, Isner's in his first major semifinal as well, so he will be amped up. You have to wonder if there's almost going to be a letdown for Anderson. You know, to come back from two sets slowed down, feel that type of adrenaline, and now you have to regroup, refocus, and play a guy John Isner, where the margins are going to be so thin, and you have to be so locked in for the entirety of the match. Uh, it might be a struggle for him. Similar, Nadal just plays, as we mentioned, probably the highest level match we've seen in 2018. Now he's got to come back on the court, summon that performance again against Djokovic. 
you know, yes, Nadal's had a lot of slam success recently, but never had to play the level he did against uh, someone like Delpo in a quarterfinal round of the tournament. Yeah. And so you wonder how much he has left in the tank. I don't know, man. Djokovic is just moving so well. And when he can win 80% of his first serve points like he did against Nishikori, I mean, the guy's he had seven breaks of Nishikori. He's going to be in every return game. And if he can hold serve with any form of ease, <sighs> head says Djokovic, heart says Nadal. And not because I love Nadal more than Djokovic, just because I, I think you convinced me with that last point. Recent form. Nadal has been into these second weeks. Of, I mean, he just won the French Open. Like, it would not be a surprise to me to see him perform well at this stage of a Grand Slam. I will be pissed, though, if we get Nadal Anderson for yeah, another Slam final. Yeah, boring match. Uh, maybe grass is a little bit better suited. But, uh, yeah, I guess the last thing that we'll, we'll bring up, because I was going to go on a rant about this before we let you into the, to the rest of the, the... Well, no, real quick, because we have you back, because it's your first appearance, and because we lost this part of the episode, we can't leave our fans without doing the favorite segment now that you're back. Fligner, cue the drum roll, please. It's time for our first doing this in a while. Maxie, warm up those vocal cords because it's time for this week's Changeover Chat. The Changeover Chat. You know, you said in the other episode that you've changed a little bit. You did. Your voice got that much better. <laughs> oh, stop. <laughs> but it's good to be back. Okay, I didn't I'm glad you. I'm glad he made us do that, though. Yeah. That, was, that was needed. It was the energy boost we needed. So I do want to let you go on a rant that I believe you have planned, and I think I know what you're about to say. Yeah. But before we do that... I have a great Twitter follow for you because you, Max Rothman, are new to Twitter. And I recommend I the first person you follow, at Luca Beck. That's Luca Branche or Brancher. I'm not exactly sure how to predict it or how to pronounce it. Predict it. I haven't been doing Clearly, uh, <laughs> we're, we're tired. Yeah, as you can tell. But some of the fun stats that he tweeted out. This is the fifth slam in a row where there is a new slam semifinalist. We've got mm-hmm. Sam Query in Wimbledon 2017. Anderson and Crano Busta, U.S. Open 17. Chung and Edmund this year's Aussie. Cecinato in this year's Roland Garros. Nice. Hey, you haven't got to hear me pronounce it yet. Yeah, that's good. I know you don't listen to the episodes. <laughs> <laughs> and then this year's Wimbledon, Isner becomes the next new guy to make a semifinal. And I will tell you, Max, between 2011 and 2016, there were the same number of new semifinals. So yeah, that's a crazy statistic. I, I think more than anything that statistic shows to me, there is an opening now for a new generation of tennis players to move forward and take hold of the game. And you know, whether we've seen Chung do it already, you know, Anderson, Query, Isner, older guys, but finally got their chance. Edmonds, another young guy. You got to want, like, it, it, you say Delpo's going to win 2018 uh, U.S. Open. I don't know. It could be another, it would not shock me at the very least if we see another new semifinalist. Chorich, Zverev, someone, a Kyrgios even. Definitely. But I mean, you also have to look, if you look at the semifinalists for, for Wimbledon right now, this is the first time in the Open era that. There's been all men over 30. And so clearly old age is bringing that experience, that maturity to these tournaments that is allowing them to make the later rounds in the second week. And I mean, this is something I think that we're seeing in a lot of sports where the older players are becoming you know, more and more dominant. And yes, we are about to enter this era of younger players, but they're going to have a hard time against these Vets that are still, you know, I mean, making it late into week it's two. It's a testament to the advancements in medical Absolutely. care, sports science, and physical therapy. And I mean, Roger Federer has a plane sponsorship. He's not flying charter to the Australian Open. He's yeah. flying private, and he's got his Vista for the week. So yes, it allows these players to succeed longer on into their careers, and it's nice. You know, it's nice to see Isner get a twilight run like this. But 
you know, the last thing we want to do, and then of course, please stick around because we have full breakdowns again of Federer Anderson as well as Isner Rayonis that you won't want to miss. Uh, Crack Rackets writer Jamie McDonald is on the pod and does a wonderful job as always keeping Max and I honest and telling us to get our own room, which is nice to be back with you. Yeah. And that is why, Max, the last thing we're going to do in this changeover chat, I have not spoken to you since Roger Federer signed his 10-year, $300 million agreement with Uniqlo. Go. Fed, what the f*** are you doing? Actually, uh, okay, so at first I was speechless. I actually couldn't believe that he would do that. That is so absurd to me that you would leave one of the largest and most recognizable sports brands in the world. First of all, you've made over $120 million in prize money, so I don't know why you care about a $300 million deal. Two, Uniqlo is just not a good-looking <laughs> brand. I'm sorry. I own some of their shirts. The material's cheap. Uh, sorry, Uniqlo. I know I'm kind of ragging and on you right you now. I would love a sponsor of Uniqlo. Of course. I mean, I love you, Uniqlo. If you want me to talk <laughs> good about you, it takes a little money like you gave the Fed. <laughs> it only takes 300 mil. But seriously, I mean, you're a guy that prides yourself on your fashion and your class and your clothing just doesn't look as good. I, I truly – the bandana looks weird. Even Djokovic realized it was time to leave and go to Lacoste. I mean, dude, <laughs> literally none of it makes sense. You don't need the money. Nike is still willing to do a shoe deal with you. No, did you hear? Apparently Nick DiPaolo, who's the shoe guy at ESPN, says he's really looking at Adidas. That, that is going to be... Okay, if you do that, I'm actually not watching you anymore. <laughs> I'll join my camp. I will join the Gruskin camp, which will be so sad. I would be so upset if that happens. But seriously, man, just... So how does... Two questions. One, the Uniqlo logo on the headband. What are your thoughts? Because people aren't taking me seriously when I say that's the worst part. It like, is. To, to see that in the forehead... Yeah, I don't want to see that. I like a little swoosh. Yeah, Nothing, it's, keep it it's clean, and clean and classy. Absolutely. And then... The my, big brick on the, uh, the sleeve. But even like, beyond that, and this isn't Uniqlo related, he goes from a one-color stick to a two-color stick. You can't do that. Yeah. I'm not as upset with that. Oh, I'm convinced his forehand got soft in this Anderson match because it's two colors. No, it's the Uniqlo. No, you can't not swing through a ball with a one-color stick. You can't be a p- yeah, Like, the, you just can't. That's uh, Sure, but also there's this weird design on your sleeve. It's probably throwing off the, <laughs> the weight the weight dimensions of his arm, and now he, he doesn't know what to do. He's thrown off in all regards. I mean, just go back. Like, uh, seriously, just do it. Look, that's that's really well said. I'm done. <laughs> you, Fed. I love you, but f- oh, Perfect. Well, then, on that note, again, make sure you stick around for this next part of the episode where we will have a breakdown of Roger Federer, Kevin Anderson, as well as Milos Raonic, John Isner. But for that, uh, Rothman, we will be sure to have you back in the booth for the semifinals and finals. A big shout-out to our producers, Westoff and Flingner, for making us sound way better than we actually are. And, of course, shout-out to Jamie McDonald, who does a great job in this podcast you're about to hear. But, okay, with that, we hope you enjoyed this edition of the Great Shot Podcast. Welcome to... Hey, great shot. Oh, this is the Great Shot Podcast brought to you by Cracked Rackets. My name is Alex Gruskin, and joining me on today's podcast, we have two returning, one returning guest and one returning host. Let's start with the guest because my mom always said guests first. 
Uh, he is making his second appearance on the Great Shot Podcast because he did so well in his debut. The fans just demanded he made his return. It is former Denison tennis superstar and NCAC all conference team. I, I, I don't remember exactly what it is, and I'm sorry, but it's Jamie McDonald. Jamie, hey, great shot. Hey, thanks. Good to be back, Justin. Glad I was all right, and uh, just glad to be back and talking some more tennis. Absolutely, and boy, do we have things to talk about. I mean, I had to bring you back just so I could gloat in front of someone who's been on the podcast this week that Federer finally went down, but we will get into that. Before we do that, returning to the Great Shot Podcast, Fligner, cue the sirens. It is my doubles partner, partner in crime, and world traveler extraordinaire, Maxwell LeBauer-Rothman. Maxie, hey, great shot. You know, I, I don't want to say I'm a different person, but I, I might be a different person than when you last remember me. We lost part of you in Thailand. Oh, all parts of me are just gone. It left in different parts of Southeast Asia. Well, I knew things were bad when I got a message from Dalton saying, hey, like, did you hear what happened to Rothman? And I was like, oh, sweet Jesus. Like, no, is he still in Asia? Did he get lost? Yeah, let's just say I had a, a wonderful night visit to a, a beautiful Chiang Mai hospital. <laughs> so it was something. Yeah, absolutely. All right, before we begin, because you got to see so much of the world, give me your three top highlights from your trip. Ooh, um, had the best meal of my life in Bangkok at a restaurant called Gagan, if anyone's ever there. Unbelievable. This is Bangkok, ha- Thailand. Yes, Bangkok, Thailand. Uh, one of the best meals of my life. I'll go number one on that. Uh, number two, probably just driving motorbikes in Siem Reap. Uh, basically took them for 60 miles one day and just unbelievable seeing really authentic uh, countryside How in, fast in Cambodia. How fast they go about, I mean, you can go like 120 kilometers. Which you did. But I was, I was about 85, 90, <laughs> which is terrifying on, a, on these Vespa-like motorbikes. Yeah, that was, that was something. Um, number three, probably just have to say uh, the sunset in Hoi An in Vietnam. Uh, beaches were beautiful. It was 98 degrees with 65% humidity. So my fair complexion didn't hold up too well, but, uh, you're still, right, you're gingerous. Yeah, it was, it was tough for, for me and my, uh, fellow gingers on the trip as well. Ooh. Two others, we all, you know, Traveling burnt, back. burnt quite badly. Uh, no, I, I'm going to correct you there and say one, a had to have just been being in Germany with your girlfriend in case she listens to the podcast. That's true. My, my girlfriend's German and having a translator with you at all times is beautiful. <laughs> Absolutely beautiful. Well, I'm glad to hear it. And I'm glad you're back in three quarters of a piece or whatever it is, because yeah. you know, any part of you is still good enough to come on this podcast. Thanks, and we haven't gotten to hear any first. Can I get a little love? Yeah, what's up? It's good to be back. <laughs> I haven't heard any of your Wimbledon takes. I've been trying to keep it fresh so that when you did, come back on the podcast we could have some natural organic arguments and i am sure we are going to get into plenty of them today uh the last thing we'll do before we start with our quarterfinal breakdown if you haven't this is you know one of the last times i'll ask go check out our website crackrackets.com anything you missed from the week whether it's the best tweets the best matches just any results you can find updates on our website there's also a ton of good content about college tennis about what's going on on the futures and challengers circuits because those haven't stopped despite it being Wimbledon um, just you know go follow our social media accounts Twitter Instagram Facebook obviously like and subscribe to this podcast as well as our other podcast the great shot podcast Max how many stars do we leave on our reviews solo five only five stars exactly I feel like solo five might be a little confusing so uh, excuse me the <laughs> Spanish is coming out yeah, of solo five Solo five. Okay, I don't know Only if that's five. Spanish, but it is good it to is. have you back. Only. 
But yeah, and you know, I know I told Rothman when he was in Europe, steal as many phones as you could find and subscribe to podcasts. And I noticed our subscriber count is up. So well done. It was it was tough to do. (laughs) I wouldn't recommend doing it. It It was risky. Exactly. Do what you can. But enough of that. Even though Max didn't travel there, we're going to knock this in his passport because we are going to England to cover the Wimbledon quarterfinals. I had to get a, a trashy. It was in Ireland. It was close enough. Across <laughs> yeah. sure, the water. I, and Jamie right now is like, shut up, guys. Like, <laughs> he's like, do you need me to leave? <laughs> <laughs> get a room and we'll talk about it later. Exactly. But let's talk about this Wimbledon quarterfinal because beyond just the storylines, the quality of tennis from match one to match four – just sensational. Anything you could have wanted, any style of tennis you got in this quarterfinal round. And the match we have to start with, and I wish we had like the church gospel music in the background, so if possible, Westhoff, throw a sound effect like that in. Roger Federer has fallen at Wimbledon for the first time since he lost to Milos Raonic all of those years ago. Federer knocked out by number 8 seed Kevin Anderson, 2-6, 6-7, 7-5, 6-4, 13-11, in what had to have been the most shocking result of the quarterfinal round, particularly because Federer was up two sets to love. And, you know, how many times have we seen Federer lose two sets to love leads? I will tell you how much later on when we do our trivia, so there's a little sneak peek. But Smirk so- on your face <laughs> right now is disgusting. <laughs> back in studio. Um, I get so called out. I got to hide my smirks from Matt yeah, and Jamie from all these But, Jamie, I want to start with you because people are probably sick of Max and I by now. What were your reactions to this match, you know, throughout the course of it? You know, starting from first set when Federer's cruising to the fifth set when it seems like Anderson's finally going to take it. Yeah, I, uh, especially to start, you know, it's like, okay, here we go again. Like, easy match. Get out of there in like an hour 40 and off the court, um, but you know things started to turn, obviously. And then I mean, after he lost that match point, there was there was a little bit of doubt, but you still always kind of had that feeling that Federer was going to pull it out because it's Federer. Um, and even in the end, in the fifth set, I'm like, okay, well, it's Kevin Anderson and it's Federer, so Federer is not going to lose Kevin Anderson. And then magically, he loses Kevin Anderson. And so you know, props to him for serving big and getting it done. Uh, but at the end of the day, I think it's for me. Obviously, I'm not so anti-Federer like you are, uh, but, you know, it's tough to see someone fall after being up two sets and having a match point. Uh, no matter who that is, it's kind of sad. Uh, so that's, that's my first reaction to it. But, you know, it does get some fresh blood into a, a deep run at, at Wimbledon, which is nice. It's good. Um, and, you know, and we'll see what Kevin can pull off in the next round. So two things I want to say. Uh, one this accusation that I'm a Fed hater. I'm not a Fed hater. I obviously adore all I mean, the Roger by Federer. default, you are a Fed uh, hater. I'm just the Skip Bayless of Cracked Rackets. I said this in our Slack. I like the idea of poking the bear and the idea that, you know, tennis isn't tennis unless Federer wins. You know, there will be a time after Federer, and I just want to, fans to be prepared, and I'm trying to get them excited about the next generation because eventually— it will be there. So it's not that I'm anti-Fed. Okay, but like you like LeBron. You, you can't <laughs> That's see. true, and I'm pro-LeBron over Jordan the same way I think Zverev will have a better career. No, I'm just oh kidding. Oh, my God. That would Let's be not too go there. Take. I agree. But the idea is I'm getting ready for the next generation because I think they're going to do things on the tennis court that Federer couldn't even do. 
and I'm just very excited for that. But getting well, back to it, I want to ask you, Jamie, because we had a very active Cracked Rackets Slack channel <laughs> going on during this match. Yeah. And you know it's active when Rothman gets involved <laughs> because he does not comment often. And the, the prevailing wisdom amongst you, amongst Rothman, amongst Alex Gornett, who's another Cracked Rackets contributor, is that for some reason Federer was falling back on his forehand, or that he just wasn't swinging through the ball aggressively trying to move into the court the way he usually does. And I was just wondering, could you elaborate on that point? Because I, I feel like you made it constantly in the slack, and I, I don't think it's a bad point. I'm just curious, what do you mean? Yeah, no, I mean, it just like seemed a lot of times, especially on the ground strokes. And if you listen to him talk in a press conference also, he talked about how later in the match his ground strokes just didn't feel right. And, you know, they didn't look right. That's, that's basically what I was talking about. You know, his follow-through, he started sort of pulling up on the ball. He wasn't, he wasn't going through the ball as he normally does. He was pulling up halfway through and his sort of Nadal buggy whip off his back foot sort of deal. Um, that's just not his swing. When he was able to sort of drive the ball and keep that left foot forward and dictate, he was fine for the most part. Um, and you didn't see any of this weird sort of buggy whip or pulling up on a shot in the first set very much. Um, and yet suddenly, deep into the match, he looked like he was doing that a lot. You know, you wonder if that's him getting tight. You wonder if his footwork's, uh, you know, getting worse because he's getting tired. It could be a lot of different things. Um, but the bottom line is, to a lot of people, and especially myself, it just looked off. And so, yeah, that's kind of what I was looking at. I mean, yeah, I, I even made a joke in the Slack that it, he was watching too much Nadal during the clay court season, and that was what <laughs> yeah. got to him. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I think if you look at the first, you know, two sets, really, he looked fine. His forehand was dominant, I think. Some people would say it wasn't, but I, I, I truly think that the first two sets, it looked so, really strong. I'm glad you're back so I get to cut you off so early. I agree. First set was cl- uh, vintage Federer. Second set, we just watched the tiebreak before starting this podcast. There were times when Anderson was jamming him center, and even then you could tell he was almost falling back on the ball. Yeah, I mean, a little bit towards the end of the second set, and it was weird. It was like he, it was very unlike Federer to seem like he was tight. But he really did, from that point on, seem tight throughout the entire uh, rest of the match, especially on those balls where we usually see him stepping in and you know really driving through. He didn't feel like he had; it didn't look like he felt that he had it, uh, and so that was really where I, I think he he lost this match was just having no confidence in those driving forehand shots, and you know it, it sucks to see because that is what makes his game so beautiful, and and watching him just rip forehand winners from parts of the court that you wouldn't usually and you saw him going off his back foot and hitting balls in the net like you know 15 year old max rothman did in the juniors so that was unfortunate to see yeah that's a fair description of Federer's game and you look at some of the stats from this match in terms of first serve percentage anderson being the 6-8 player you'd think he'd have the distinctive advantage but that really wasn't the case Federer in this match served 69 percent versus anderson 67 percent on first serves you look at their win percentage on the first serve, Federer 79, Anderson 76. Second serve, Federer 59 to Anderson's 52. And then you even look at the net points, and you see Federer converts 72% of his chances, goes 28 of 39 versus Anderson's 15 of 31. And, you know, it all culminates to the fact that regardless of Federer even being a little bit off, he had so many chances to win this match. And Jamie already mentioned it. He had a match point in the third set of 5-4. Um, you look you know, at some of the other things in this match, total points won. Federer won 195 to Anderson's 190. So yeah, Federer was right there. He absolutely could have had this match. Um, you know, Asking you, Jamie, in terms of what flipped in the third and fourth sets, not necessarily for Federer, 
but for Anderson, what did Anderson start doing better that allowed him to maybe take the offensive versus before when he wasn't able to? I don't know. I mean, if you listen to what Anderson said in his press conference, he talked about how the first set was horrible in his mind because there was just no belief from him. Um, and he said that sort of started switching as the match went on, which I think is a pretty honest but good thing to say. Um, and you kind of see in the second set, yeah, Federer wasn't playing out well, but Anderson was giving himself chances. And I think it was just sort of the, the mentality of having opportunities. Because that's, especially when you're playing someone like Federer, if he's on, you've probably got no shot. But as long as you can give yourself some sort of opportunity, you know, there's a little bit of hope. Um, and so for me, what I saw is Anderson basically just hung around. He saved that match point, And I think that gives you some momentum. Because in my mind, what I see from Federer there is he thinks the match is going to be over. Um, I think he thinks that he's, he's about to be done. Um, and not to say he was just kind of cruising and like, oh, he's out of it mentally, but, you know, I think he was expecting to be done with the match, whereas um, on the flip side of that, Kevin Anderson now has new momentum, a new surge from saving a match point, uh, ends up pulling off the set, and then from there, even though he's down two sets to one, he's got the momentum. Um, so I think that's sort of what changed there. Yeah, and I mean, like you said, with, you know, kind of finding opportunities and playing Federer, Really, I think the the thing that Anderson did really well to give himself more chances in this match was attacking Federer's second serve. If you watch the the third set, especially, and, and really into the fourth set, too, all of Fed's second serves, you saw Anderson stepping in and just driving it hard down the middle. And if you give yourself that chance to put Fed on the defensive that early, especially when he was showing that, you know, one, the momentum was shifting, and two, that he was feeling a little off in his strokes. I mean, that that right there gives you that opportunity that, Jamie, like you're saying, you, you need against him when he's not on, at his uh, you know at his peak. I also think if you look at the stats, it reflects that Anderson was more aggressive. You look at his winner count, he hit 65 winners to Federer's 61. Anytime you're hitting more winners than Roger Federer in a match, you have to be playing well just because of the way Roger Federer plays tennis. He's you know, he always is looking for his opportunities to hit the final ball, to move in. And so Anderson was keeping pace with him. And then in the unforced air count, you know, usually against Federer because of the pressure gets to the guy, you see him taking more chances. But in this match, Anderson has two less unforced errors than Federer. I think that's a testament to him playing aggressive, good tennis. Absolutely. And that was so evident. If you watch this match, I don't think I've ever seen Anderson move as much or as well as he did. I mean, he was chasing down everything, and it actually ended up you know, resulting in a few pretty bad unforced errors by Federer. He even saw Fed put a terrible, terribly easy backhand volley right into the net. And I mean, obviously that very rarely happens, but you know, Vanderson doesn't give that last ditch effort to put it in. I mean, that doesn't happen regardless. So, uh, I mean, also kudos to Anderson for putting in a ton of effort, uh, you know, moving around the court. Yeah. I, I- you're, you're absolutely right. I think the movement is a big thing to point out because Anderson, unlike maybe Isner, Rayonich, uh, the other two big guys whose match we'll talk about next, he moves a little bit better at the baseline. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't have to move forward as urgently as those other two because he can sustain well, Also, his rally. volleys are pretty shaky, so you don't see him come in Compared as to much. Rayonich and Isner? Oh, absolutely. I very much agree with that. And you can see he converts under 50% of his net points. Yeah, I mean, and, and if you saw Fed, this is what Fed did well in the first two sets was, you know, hit these short chipped uh, back in returns, bring him into the net, and, you know, then he's can hit one groundie to his volleys, and he's, you know, he's hanging in and winning a lot of those points. So that was, that was pretty evident and wasn't able to do that the rest of the match. I agree with you, and I think it's a bit surprising given Anderson's background, 
you know, he played college tennis at Illinois. He's actually an NCAA dubs. doubles champion. You think that? But you're right. He's not the most comfortable volleyer. When he hits the big first serve, he will look to serve and volley. But yeah, he was not comfortable doing that. And I think against Isner, the last thing you want is to let Isner get aggressive and try and hit big on that second serve the way he was doing against Rayonich. And I do want to talk more about Kevin Anderson because even though he's so familiar to us, uh, he may not be familiar to the average tennis fan who doesn't follow it as closely. But we'll save our breakdown of Anderson for when we do our semifinal preview and kind of, you know, give his how he's looked all year and how he will face against Isner. The last thing I want to do before we transition to who Anderson will be facing off in the semifinals, a quick trivia question, because as I mentioned earlier, you know, Federer losing after going up two sets to love, shocking to all of us tennis fans. It feels like whenever he gets a chance, he slams the door shut, and that's how he's been so successful over the years. But you look back on his record, you will see he has lost four matches now in his career when, when up two sets to love. Jamie had to correct me on the outline, so I know he knows the answer. So, Max, we're going to go to you for this question with our favorite segment, Westoff, cue the sound effect. Time for Alex's trivia. Max, you know the question. Name the four. Yeah, so, also just to throw in before I name this, he actually, in Grand Slams, he's, two, I, so I actually don't know who the fourth person is. So, in Grand Slams, he's two, now 266 and three. Just have to throw out that number because that is insane yeah, to go. I mean, lots of people lose after winning the first two sets and to be 266 and three in Grand Slams, yeah, that's something. Um, but it's pretty hard to not know the Grand Slam matches because those were unbelievable matches. Um, I remember watching the Song of Federer match at Wimbledon, and that was something else. I remember loving. I mean, I'm always, uh, I've always been a Song of fan, so seeing him do that to to Fed was unbelievable. Um, so that was back in Wimbledon in 2011, and then you also had uh, Djokovic taking him down in the U.S. Open. Uh, and that was sad. Uh, that one I, I really wanted. Isn't that fed. when he hit the crazy return down match point? It was like a four. Jimmy, yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong. That was the forehand slap, right? Uh huh. Yeah, he absolutely whacked the ball. Just the cross court. Utter, utter disbelief, and yeah, it was ridiculous. Yeah, I was also watching that match. I remember see. I was like, "There's just no way." It was that just was one of those like, "I don't give a run. shit. I'm just gonna rip this and boom, changed and everything." Um, but so I don't, I don't know. I really have no idea who else. It, so the, have, it's not a Grand Slam, so I have no not, idea. It is the only person outside of the Big Four and Del Potro, in my opinion, who was never afraid of Roger Federer. And unfortunately, this player didn't have the longevity. He's an Argentinian. He is known for once smacking his racket and it hit a line judge on the oh, line. Oh, Nelbandian? It was Nelbandian, and I believe it was 2005 in Houston. Uh, I think I've seen the highlights of this match. First of all, I forgot how hard Wait, now Bandian hit the Houston ball. Houston had a, a, I think it was the World Tour Finals. And that's why it was five sets. Yeah, I was saying, yeah. That, that's what was weird to me. I, I was shocked to know that there was another tournament that had five sets. Yeah, and it's just, I mean, because I, 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 I watched the highlights recently with Fliegner just because we were sick of Wimbledon. And <laughs> oh my gosh. Now Bandian, no fear. If Federer left the ball in the center, he's just like, I'm going after this. And on that day, he did not. That's, that's what was, you have to do. It was really impressive. Um. I, I did say this would be the last thing, but I want to ask you this now, Max, because we haven't had you on, and I know you have quite a bit to say about Roger Federer and Uniqlo. Do you want to do that now, or do you want to save that for the end of the pod? 
Oh God! Let's save it. Let's, All right, we'll let's, save that for the end. But be sure, <laughs> listeners, got to stick around if you want to hear Rothman's thought on the fashion switch, because you know he is our fashion expert here on the Great Shot <laughs> Podcast. But okay, let's move on to our second quarterfinal. And again, this is going to be Kevin Anderson's opponent on the top half of the draw. We have the big American, number nine seed John Isner, making the first major semifinal of his career after he takes out Canadian Milos Raonic, the 13 seed. 6-7, Jamie, I don't know how much there is to talk about this match in terms of the particulars of each point because it was really just servbot tennis throughout. Yeah, it was, I mean, for me, it, it, I mean, it was entertaining to some degree, but it was also a little hard to watch because you <laughs> kind of know what's going to happen except for a couple points. Uh, even Ron said it after, after he lost in his press conference. Someone asked him, like, hey, were you surprised by anything this match? He's like, no, it went exactly by the script, um, <laughs> which is true. I mean, he, yeah. they, they both know that the entire match is just like, oh, hey, you can maybe make one out of three returns that is significant. Um, and that's just the way they play, and, you know, that's fine. Personally, I don't love watching big man tennis. It just doesn't do that much for me. Uh, but you still got to respect the competition, and I love seeing Isner fired up. And, uh, you know, I think that propelled him through this match. He was... He was getting pumped, especially after he took his set. Um, and, you know, from there on, he just ran with it when he took that second set. And so, I don't know. It was impressive to me, but at the same time, you kind of knew what the, the scoreline was going to look like to some degree. So. Yeah, I mean, I made a, a bet with a buddy here um, that the match would go 7-6-6-7-7-6-7-6. And it was, it was pretty close. I actually was surprised to no see two breaks. No faith in the Isner return. Yeah, no, not at all. Greensboro um, has worn you down over the years. <laughs> yeah, but this, this match was actually going on during the Delpo Nadal match as well as the World Cup game uh, with Croatia and England. And so I was kind of simultaneously watching all three. Um, definitely this one had the least amount of watching time on my part. Um, but yeah, it's exactly what you expected. But if you look at the stats, I mean, it, it's pretty evident why Isner won. He made more first serves. He won more of his first serve points. He won more of his net points. I mean, it, it was pretty clear that he was going to win this match, especially after he got that break in the uh, in the third set. I think the momentum kind of went his way. Well, there's only one tactical thing I really want to point from for this match, and it's just because Isner faces another big server next, as we mentioned, in Kevin Anderson. And I think the thing Isner did particularly well as this match went on you know, the second he saw Arayonich's second serve, he was inside of the baseline trying to take it on the rise, take a big cut at the ball, not let Rayonich serve in volley, and, you know, maintain an aggressive stance on the court. And in, you know, the two breaks he got during this match, because Isner only got two or no, no, I'm sorry, Isner got three breaks in this match because he broke Rayonich in the last game as well. I, I think Isner's ability to make those returns to put pressure on his opponent that's going to be huge going forward. And you look at some of the stats in this match, you know, the difference between Isner and Rayonich comes down to those second serves. And you're looking at the average speed per serve. Isner at 124, Rayonich at 126. I mean, as Max mentioned, those that's lights out. And both guys win over 80% of their first serve points. But then you look at the second serve speeds. Isner 117 still firing in rockets. Rayonich's second serve dips down to 104, and I think that extra second of the ball hanging in the air gave Isner enough time to take returns early. And in a match where there's two tie breaks and only two, uh, you know, three breaks throughout the match, but they're all from the same guy. I mean, that little margin of error is what's going to make the difference between winning and losing a match like this. Yeah, that's that's a good point. I mean, that serve, that second serve at 117. 
it's ridiculous. That's an insane average number. Um, I know that gets kind of glossed over because it's like, oh yeah, in there he's third fix. But you're seeing a 117 is your average second serve, and you're, you're not getting a clean look on that hardly ever. Um, so that's impressive. But one of the things I noticed from this, and like I said, it's, it was classic big man tennis a lot of it. But one thing that both of them were doing to get each other in trouble is when they would come to net, and you know Ronis a lot because he was coming on to serve a good amount. Uh, as soon as they could volley short, if they could get control of the net and volley short to the other one and make make sure the other one basically had to uncomfortably run up because neither of them were the best movers. Um, you know, they were they were getting, you know, the other person a lot of trouble. And so I don't know if that's something that, I mean, I think it's definitely something Anderson needs to keep in mind, especially if he doesn't have great hands. But just if he can chip something low and short or hit a volley decently short and make Isner run out to the ball. Yeah, I mean, it looked incredibly unathletic from both of them trying to move up on that ball. Um, and honestly, the person at the net who was hitting a short volley ended up winning the point most of the time simply because they were in a better position and, you know, none of these big guys are the best movers. However, we have talked about Kevin's a better, you know, is a better mover than the other big men, so maybe that would, you know, translate against him as well. But I think it's definitely something you should be watching and seeing in the film against Isner. So I will say I think two points were made that are, you know, reasons why I think Isner is actually going to win this next match. Uh, the first being that second serve speed. I think, seriously, what allowed Anderson to win that match with Fed was his ability to attack the second serve. And without, you know, a really weak second serve for Anderson attack, he's going to be on the defense in every single service game, as most people are with Isner. But you do need that opportunity to to get into those service games every once in a while, unless you're really just hoping to win, you know, three out of five tiebreak sets uh, with Isner. So I think Which, that's... by the way, is impossible because there's no tiebreaker in the fifth. That's true. There's no tiebreaker in the fifth. So again, that, that advantage goes to Isner. Uh, the second thing is, too, I think that Isner does a good job at, you know, bringing people to net when possible. And uh, if he can bring uh, Anderson into the net, and we we saw how uncomfortable Anderson is at the net... I think one thing that Isner's done super well in the past year is got better at passing shots. I think it's something he's really improved, and if he can bring in Anderson to the net a couple times throughout this match and capitalize on some big points, I think it's going to go to his well, that's way. That's an interesting point when you say Isner bring or brought Rayonich to the net because yeah, you look at this, right. Rayonich has 70 attempts at the net versus Isner's 37, and you know Jamie mentioned this idea of once they're at the net, they hit the short volley. But how did Isner bring Rayonich to the net in an organic way, in a way that didn't put him on the you know a terrible defensive position? Yeah, I mean it's more about right that that is the the goal is how do you do it in an organic way, and I think. It wasn't necessarily all Isner that brought Ranich in, uh, but it's it's about slicing and bringing him in. That's that's what Fed did, and if Isner learned anything from that match, that's what he needs to do. Especially on the grass, right? Because the yeah, ball keep it low, keep it short. Guys uncomfortable. Yeah, I agree with you. And again, I think that net point total that seventy for Ranich versus 30, uh, crazy. Uh, thirty of thirty-seven for Isner. I think Rayonich was a little reckless, and yeah, he took a medical timeout in the first set, and I think he took a couple more throughout the course of this match, so clearly he was trying to end points quickly. I mean, this was a four-set match, two tiebreakers, under three hours. So these guys were playing fast tennis, yeah. but still... As we both said in the Slack would happen. <laughs> exactly, and you know, yeah, we literally said it's uh, Under three hours. <laughs> hey, good great job. job. Uh, 
But you look at some of the things, you know, Isner did a great job cutting off volleys. I'm pretty sure Raonic in the second set tiebreak had a set point at 7-6. He got a passing shot opportunity. And again, just like in the Bemelmans match and just like in the round before, Isner stuck a backhand volley that he's not always the most comfortable with, fights off that set point, hits a huge first serve, then hits a big return on the first serve ball, dips at Raonic's feet, and that's the match for you. You know, it's literally in a match with the margins of this thin, that's what makes the difference. And so it's a credit to Isner for him, you know, playing smart, aggressive tennis. And so, yeah, I, I thought it was a really job well done. Definitely. And, you know, as I said, I think Isner's got the next match. I'm curious, what, what do you guys think? Isner or Anderson? set the scene real quick and then we'll do the semi-final preview so again it's Anderson versus Isner you look at this Anderson 32 years old again also played his college tennis at Illinois NCAA doubles champion and you know fun fact Isner and Anderson actually matched up in the NCAA team final in 2007 that was a match Georgia won in a match Isner actually knocked off Anderson 7-6-6-1 so these guys have you know played each other in big moments before, but Anderson again, 23 and 10 on the year, one title. He's got wins over Tiafo, Hachanov, Donaldson, Chung, Nishikori, Query, and as we mentioned, this is his second career major semifinal appearance after he made the final. Last week. 